Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome. I'm your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, and we are live streaming as well on Facebook at Resiliency Within. You may want to join us. So our topic today is children's mental health preparing for back-to-school challenges. As many of us are aware, children can be caught in the crossfire of parental disagreements with schools deciding to mask or not to require masks. The COVID-19 pandemic has increased stress, fear, and anxiety for many children, and many family members have reported increased challenges with their children's behavior, including anxiety and acting out. Making the, the transition from home to school will be harder for children with developmental, behavioral, or emotional challenges. Ryan Etheridge will describe how his school district has prepared the staff and teachers for helping children transition from home to school. And they actually started coming back to school um, during the last school year, so they have a little bit of experience with this. But let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Ryan Etheridge. First of all, I want you to know he's a very creative person, and I've seen some of the creations of how he's adapted the community resiliency model that we've talked about many times. But he serves as the project-aware evaluator and coaching coordinator for Cleveland County Schools in Shelby, North Carolina. Project AWARE is a SAMHSA-funded granting grant seeking to improve gra- graduation rates and reduce substance use in rural communities by mitigating barriers to accessing mental health services and providing a continuum of social, emotional, and behavioral supports for students. So Ryan has trained hundreds of staff and community members in youth mental health first aid, and the community resiliency model. He previously served as a high school assistant principal where he managed student discipline, which I imagine was not an easy job, Ryan. Um, Also the exceptional children's program and communication. Ryan was a reading and math teacher at Boiling Springs Elementary School. I bet you you were popular, where he served as the parent involvement coordinator. Of course they had you do that. Wait till you hear from him. Ryan received his bachelor's arts degree in early childhood education from Clemson University At Clemson, he worked for the Center of Excellence for Instructional Technology um, Foundation. Ryan is currently working toward earning his his doctorate in education in educational leadership and policy from Vanderbilt University. And when Ryan is not obsessing over a spreadsheet, I can just see you doing that. He enjoys spending time exploring the local greenway. Baking cookies, I want to hear more about that, and gardening with his wife and three sons. So... Dear Ryan, what's on your mind today as we get started? Elaine, I have just so appreciated the the CRIM, the Community Resiliency Model Training that we've gone through, through through the years, and it has really been brought to my attention over the last two weeks as we've opened up school. Um, you know, right when school starts opening up, your workload increases dramatically. And so I've been working on spreadsheets um, and and organizing the start of school for a lot of different projects. And I have felt the pain in my back. And and for so long, I thought, oh, this is a posture issue. It's purely physical. It's just posture. I need to sit up straighter. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to fix it in some way. And I started thinking, wait a second, 
I have been through these trainings. What is really going on is I am, I am sensing my stress and it's playing out in my body. And it's like, what I need to do is not just fix my posture. I actually need to kind of deal with my stress. <laughs> and so that's something I've turned my attention to this last week is how do I actually um, have moments of peace and, and de-stressing and calming myself back down so that I really can get back to where I need to be. And so what's on my mind is a little bit of back pain sometimes. <laughs> I see. And that, that's about reading your nervous system. And for those of you that this may be your first show, the community resiliency models, a set of six wellness skills are pretty simple. And they're about the mind-body connection and how through learning how to read your nervous system, which is what you did when you had that pain, you can then make a decision of maybe paying attention to something that may help your cultivate your well-being. And I'm hoping that what you're saying is that then it's turning down the volume of that stress in your back. And so then you're not right. feeling the pain in the same way. Is that's what is that is that what is happening? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> okay. when I when I acknowledge it's not just a posture issue, when it's right. not just me harming myself by sitting in correctly, and I realize no, this is actually stress playing out in my life. I can start drawing my attention to other things and 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 just helping myself get back down. I'm not focused on the pain anymore. I have a, a better attitude towards it. I can actually focus on the task at hand. And so I really appreciate the community resiliency model this last week. Well, I'm, just I, saying. And I, well, I'm glad to hear that. Some, many people know that I was one of the developers of it and we call it CRIM. We'll just call it CRIM or CRM. So we don't have to say the whole thing every time. Um, but also, you know, I'm just wondering about what are those things that help you get through? You said you identified those stresses. Cause, so can you share with some of your resources of what helps you? Oh, sure. All right. So, <laughs> you know, we're I'm in a very rural setting, right? And so that's one of the reasons we have this grant is because we are rural. My high school was rural. My elementary school was rural. Um, and so in rural communities, you're often bound by the seasons. And the season that it is right now is fig season for me. And so one of the things I really enjoy doing is going outside with my three sons and we pick figs off the trees. And, and right now we have three different fig trees. And right now we're picking a gallon, a gallon and a half, sometimes two gallons a day wow. worth of figs and then processing them. And so that's something I'm really, really enjoying is just being there in the moment, picking figs and eating them right off the tree. Um, so I really have enjoyed that. Um, sometimes doing the spreadsheets can be a stress reliever, especially when they're for other people. And I get to just help people out in the moment. I really do enjoy that. I know that's odd and different. No, but I think it's important to find those things that help us, right? Because not only it sounds like you like figs, but you like spending time with your three sons. And, but you also like doing things. I'm, I'm seeing also this helping others. I mean, it may be that the spreadsheet sheet is a vehicle to helping others, which I've seen that you've had a big value of doing that for people, Ryan. It, it definitely is. Yes. That, I mean, I, and, and the joy they get. And, you know, using my, my crim skills too, I'm, I'm noticing my gestures. I know you can't see them right now. We're on radio, maybe on Facebook you can, but I'm clasping my hands together <laughs> and I'm holding them underneath the desk and I'm leaning in because I like even, even though I'm not picking figs right now, and even though I'm not hanging out with my kids, and, and I love being here with you, uh, you know, I'm not on a spreadsheet right now. Like, I still can just live in that moment and, and have a sense of that, and it can help me kind of relax in this time talking oh. to you where I might feel more stressed sometimes. Well, so. I'm just going to invite you to notice that. Notice what that's like to bring those images up because and I see a big smile on your face. And and so as we get started about talking a little bit more about we're gonna, the very serious subject we're going to talk about in terms of helping kids. But, you know, I also I've seen that you've done a lot of work with children from being a school teacher to technology to now being an administrator. So 
What was it about your lived experience in your life, Ryan, that helped shape you to decide you wanted to do this kind of work in the world? Yeah, I, I think I came about this in a different way sometimes than a lot of people. Um, I, for a long time, I just thought I was going to live overseas and, and like kind of be a missionary in another country or be an educator in another country. And that's really what I, what I thought I would do. And so I lived, I just posted on Instagram last night, a, a small story about my experiences living in Nicaragua for a summer in college. And I was the only person around and I wasn't great at Spanish. And, and that was a very formative period of time for me, but I worked with children who had to be removed from their homes because of abuse or neglect or or just a difficult situation. And so I came back and I got into my first student teaching experience and all these problems I thought existed elsewhere. What I realized is they existed right here next door to me. Mm -hmm. And if I would open up my eyes and I would open up my heart and I would just look at the needs of my community, I could really pour out in the place wherever I was and try to do as much good for other people as I could. And, um, and, and so that's what I brought into education is I don't, I don't know. And so parent involvement mm-hmm. coordinating at the elementary school was natural to me because, hey, I don't know your situation, but I, what I want to do is invite you into this space. And this is your space. And it's a shared space for the good of your child. And what I can do to help you and your child, that's what I want to do. And then I brought that into as a high school administrator. And it was a little bit of a shock moving from little people, people. Uh, to, to, to big people. Yes. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that time period because what I realized is people are people and someone in the moment of, of a stressful period of time, um, we just have these biological, this, this is how we respond to stress. And so if you can cultivate, I always appreciate talking to you because you have this calm, soothing voice, right? Thank you. And it reminds me of my pre-K teachers um, <laughs> when I was in college is this is how they would talk steady tone. And I realized I could bring that into the high school space as well. And we could start shaping policies, not around by what was most efficient at accomplishing our tasks, but maybe by what was best for the child. And a lot of the times those things converge. Well, you know, what's best for the child is being safe in school. And so if I can have a a policy for the kid that both promotes safety, cuts back on our disciplinary issues, supports the overall well-being of the child and and builds the support of a community like that is that is a wonderful thing. And I wasn't perfect at it. I'm not trying to, I struggled a lot. Well, with that, and, a lot of and learning. I think, that, I think you're the perfect person to manage this grant, which has to do with the mental health. And I, you know, we were talking a little bit about, oh, but I, I wasn't trained as a mental health provider, but I think what you did in Nicaragua probably were boots on the ground that you got trained as a mental health provider. And I like to think about mind body health. So, so would you tell us a little bit about the SAMHSA grant and, um, what it what are the needs that it's attending that's attempting to address? Sure. So SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's a it's a large federal grant. It's already been through one issuing to 26 states or Indian reservations, and, and we're part of the second issuing, and now there's a third one. And so what you do, what they've done is identified rural communities and what they want to do is, hey, how do we kind of help students access a continuum of mental health services? Because what we know is that that students are supported um, and throughout their throughout their educational career, you know, if they if they provide support, what we're going to see down the road is better attendance in school, better graduation rates, reduced um, substance use later on. And so that that's what we're doing in our grant is trying to be a model for these practices in rural communities and, and offer our resources out. And so it could be a peer mentoring program at a local high school. It could be working with elementary schools and training them in the community and the CRIM model 
and then giving them like practice and, and resilient spaces in their school. It could be just equipping maybe some higher level mental health clinicians or behavior liaisons in our school who can address acute need, behavioral needs of students on a day-to-day basis. It's reaching out to our community and our parents and saying, what do you need from us? Is there a resource that you would that, that we could provide for you that might help support the well-being of your child? It really um, sounds like the schools as a hub of all these different services. Is that kind of what this grant is trying to do? Yeah, yeah, because schools are this beautiful, you know, I'm a school person, right? So uh, schools are this like beautiful democratic place where just about every person in the United States has an experience passing through a school. And so there's pros and cons to this, but what you see is a lot of um, students when they come through school and they need access to greater social supports, the school helps facilitate this for them in some way. So maybe it's, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Because you said creating resilient spaces and, you know, I, I tend to like the word resilience. I think about it as cultivating well-being. There's a lot of different definitions. So what are resilient spaces? Um, could you describe what that is? Sure. All right. So a lot of times the behavior that I would see as an administrator or even as a, as a teacher came because a student felt in some way that they were backed into a corner and they only had one way to respond. And so whether it was And this is not literally backed into a corner, just emotionally, like they felt cornered, they felt challenged by by the academics, by a classmate, by something, and they needed some way to exercise their stress and and get this out. And what that often looks like in school is is some sort of disciplinary infraction. And so what we've worked with a lot of our schools is saying, how can we identify that we might be getting close to bubbling over and something that might become a behavior that needs some sort of intervention and provide an, a physical area or a, a mental space for that student to de-escalate and, and come back down. And so I think about it pretty broadly in school. So on students' desks in a lot of our schools, there's a small corner that reminds them of the CRIM help now skills. Right. And so easily, easily accessible right there on their desk, they can remember a skill and take a moment to reflect on that. So just then, for a second, and, a help now yeah, sk- yeah. skill could be looking around the room and naming the colors. It could be counting down from 20. It could be noticing the temperature of the room, listening to the sounds. So all these kinds of little very, they're really actually cognitive interventions that there's sure. an action that they can be very easily sitting at their chair can help calm and quell their nervous system that may be getting bumped into what we call the higher low zone. So they actually have those on their desk. I'm very impressed. I didn't know about that. So, yeah. so, so that's one of the ways. So the children are, are encouraged to learn skills for themselves so they can cultivate their own well-being. That's what I'm hearing you say with these, with these little help now strategies on, the, on their desks. Yeah, and and I mean, you created this model, and so you know this. But like, I'm just the, excited about it. What we try to do first is make sure that it's founded in tracking. Are you actually aware of what's going on with yourself? Because grabbing a help, like I can drink a sip of water out of my awesome Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cup, but until I actually use that to track what's going on and and, and have this felt sense of what's going on with that, it's not really a help now skill. And so how we're trying to teach students to self-assess throughout this. And so this is something I struggle with. So as an administrator who's in charge of discipline, I really like less disciplinary incidents happening in schools, right? And so there's one school that implemented a lot of these skills and they saw over a 60% reduction in disciplinary referrals. I worry to say that because I don't want to paint this as, hey, 
primarily this is a disciplinary intervention. No, and that's Um, really important that we say that because we want to give skills to children just like we teach them how to read and write. We teach them how to read their nervous system so they can learn how to to know when they're stressed, like you know now when you have that pain in your back, it's not just because your posture is bad, but it, <laughs> it could be, but it doesn't look bad to me right now. But I mean, but I think it really is important to, I want to just, like if I had a highlighter, I would highlight that in yellow because we yeah. don't want it to be about, oh, this is just about helping the teachers not send kids to the office. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-mm. No, and and I don't think the the model really works that well if your no. goal is primarily to to reduce your discipline. It, it works best when when what you truly care is about like the the well-being of that individual with whom you're interacting. And whatever the outcome that comes from that comes from that, but actually be concerned yourself with with the well-being of that person in front of you is very important. And um, so there's actually a 60% reduction you said in in the, so that means the ch- the children were were actually learning how to read their nervous systems and being able to manage their their own sensations, feelings, emotions in a different way. Yes, and and I think it's important that students are learning that too. But also that parallel with that is there were teachers who were recognizing that our nervous systems affect our behavior and the outcomes that come up. So there was greater sensitivity and awareness for teachers who would provide a space for de-escalation. And then there were also systems that were put in place that said, it is okay for a student to escape for a moment to come back down if then they can re-engage in class. And so I, I worry sometimes that so often we just say discipline is that child misbehaving, whereas actually there's like this one always exists in some sort of context. It's a react. It's an interaction with some sort of authority figure, and then it happens in a physical location. And so, all these things are happening in parallel together. And and so, it's all those things together. Not just that students are more aware, and so they can stop misbehaving. It is about addressing both the the individual, the relationship, and the community and the context that it's in. Yeah, because it has to be every part of that. Because if it's, it can't be one without the other, and I think that's the important part about right. resilient spaces. It's about how we how we look at and cultivate our own well being. We often say, put your oxygen mask on first for teachers, yeah. parents, other caregivers of children, because then they're then they're reacting from their best self when they're with that child. If he is having, if he or she's having some challenges or they're, or they're having some challenges. So, you know, one of the things, of course, that everybody has been talking about has been coming back to school. Many kids have been home. Many kids have been on Zoom where they're, I'm sure, anxious to start interacting with their friends. Um, and there's the concern. I read one statistic that over 50% of kids had some mental health challenges as they were coming back into school. So I'm just wondering, what are you seeing in, in your school in North Carolina? And when we're talking about these resilient spaces, are there any things that you're implementing that's connected to the SAMHSA grant or just what you're doing in your school district to help kids who are having challenges right now? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a tough time. <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, we, we talked about this a little bit be, before this started. Um, that there have just been no easy decisions over the last year and a half, two years, right? Um, and so one of the things that both personally and professionally I've tried to practice, and, and again, not, not perfect with this, but something that I've tried to, to keep in my mind is grace to all people in whatever decision that you're, that you're needing to make for the safety and well-being of your family. Um, and, and I disagree with people who I'm very close to, you know, like I'm a, a pro-masker and pro-vaccine person. And, and there are people who I care dearly about who, who we disagree 
about that issue, but I hope that the same grace I try to extend to them, they are also extending to me. But you're also always concerned about the safety and well-being of, of students. And so could could I just amplify yeah. that though? Because I think yes. this is important right now. Many of us may be sitting with you know, people that we care and love about who think very differently about vaccination and masks. But how do we try to have compassion for each other? But most, I think, importantly, how do we also help the children who may also be experiencing the repercussions of that? Um, because I've also heard that some children whose um, parents say don't wear a mask when they get into the school they want to wear a mask. So I imagine as an administrator, I mean, what happens if, have, you know, have you ever encountered that? And I think that I know when I was a kid, I kind of wanted to fit in. And if I had, you know, 20 friends in a classroom and I was the only one, or there were just a couple of us without a mask, for example, or vice versa, I'd kind of want to be like everybody else. So how do you deal with those kinds of things? And are you dealing with those kinds of things? I guess first, I, that's just a thought. Um, and, and, you know, sc- students are, are exploring their, their social and their peer connections like, like these are very, very acute for kids in school. And so they feel that they like feel that pr- social pressure going on and they notice it and they talk about it and they're concerned about it. Um, I, you know, for for us, we've, we've just kind of adopted a policy of a little bit, allow them to, to, to make a decision, but also make sure that things are safe. And so, you know, if a, if a kid is exempt from wearing a mask for, for some reason, um, you, they, they might come into the school, but also like if they choose to wear a mask when they're in the school, like you're not going to force them to remove it. Um, and, and so that's a tricky situation that, that admin administrators and teachers are having to navigate right now. So definitely um, grace to them as they are uh, navigating those difficult waters. Cause um, again, there have been no easy decisions. And so one of the things that, that our, um, our wonderful support staff, our school counselors, our, our social workers are doing is they're very aware of these social concerns. And so they are, people of support for students in school. And we're trying to be very, very explicit that we have resources of people who, who care about the, the well-being, both physically and mentally of your child in the school and make sure that parents and students know who they are and that they can easily access them. Um, a supportive adult is a huge protective factor for students in schools. So we want to be very clear with people, hey, this is who it is. This is how you contact them. This is the resources and supports that we. So you're trying to provide. help the, the teachers as well, not take issue with, regardless of where people are on the spectrum of masking or not masking or vaccinating and not vaccinating, is you use the word grace, because we don't want to have children be the middle of that tug of war, do we? It wasn't. Wouldn't that create more anxiety, and distress in children? Yeah, and and people, it, it does seem like everything's really, really magnified when when children are at the center and so as soon as you say it's an education it's in education or it's in students we all have this experience with this domain we've all know what it is meant to be a, a child and so that is um difficult and so we try not to escalate situations that could be de-escalated um and so that is something that we need to be aware about in schools because we sometimes society might project project on us certain things that they're going through they want to sort out but for us ultimately at the end of Today, what we want to guarantee is students are as safe as possible in our schools and that they can learn and access a high quality education. And so that's where we try to draw our attention to. Well, one of the things you had shared with me before we started the show was that you had seen an increase in anxiety in the children. 
And I mean, I wouldn't be, there's so much that's unknown, but you also shared with me that you had done a survey and I thought it might be interesting if you share some of the results of the survey, because I think this is important information for all educators to, if they haven't done something like this, to maybe consider it. But I think what you found out about the seniors, I think is a really important um, aspect to illuminate. Yeah, and this this was a survey done um, kind of regionally for for students in transition. But what this this survey occurs every few years. It's not one that we develop, but we get the the results of the data and we get to drill down a little bit. And one of the things we saw that was really interesting is that um, rates of and apologies. This is a, a trigger warning for suicidal ideation. But um, students uh, in earlier grades who were assessed with this survey were reporting lower rates of suicidal ideation. However, they were higher than they have been in the past for seniors. And so you have the data, but then you also have the processing and the narrative that you start telling. And so that's just led us to reflect why would lower grades have a reduction in suicide ideation, but then the significant year, the senior year have an increase. And so there's a lot of traditions. There are a lot of values that go into the senior year. It's, it's a crucial year. It's a huge period of transition for them. And so how do we, as a school, acknowledge that this is the case? And then what additional supports and structures do we put in place to make sure that students know that they're supportive adults who can help them through periods of stress and stress and anxiety? How do we help them navigate that uh, that kind of difficulty of transition where so many things are unsure? We've been going through the season of just chronic stress and trauma, and that has an effect on us. And so how do we help students navigate through this season? And so um, that has been tough, but it's also something our staff is acutely aware of and, and is explicit with our students about. Well, I was just, as you said that, I was just thinking about all the tradi- traditions that you have in high schools, like going to senior prom or the, yeah. the important, you know, football game or getting ready, you know, the, uh, the yearbook and taking the pictures and talking about all the transitions that happen. And it's been different with COVID. We haven't been able to do some of those things. And so I, I think the importance of those traditions are kind of hitting me right now as we're talking of how important they are. And if you didn't get to do them, um, that whole idea of transition and then going to the next phase of your life could be more challenging. And I think you said something important too, the unknown. I think kids don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic and, you know, going to school, will they be able to be in college with other people? And I think there's been a lot of isolation for children um, when they're supposed to be, when you know, when you think of the developmental age of teenagers, they're supposed to be, you know, hanging out, falling in love for the first time, you know, going on dates, all those kinds of things that have been thwarted as a result of COVID. So, um, so when you found out that information, um, I'm just curious about how do you let the parents know this? Because if I was a parent, I would want to know. And I would want to be checking in with my kid about how they were doing. Oh, yeah. Um, so, First, this this data is publicly available, um, and so so that that's known to them. Also, we we have just developed protocols for what do you do when you identify um, a student who might be at risk of suicidal ideation. And this was legislated in the state of North Carolina that you had to have these policies in place. And so our team was part of the team that rolled this out in our district. What is our policy? What do we do? And critical to that is parent communication, making sure that right. parents are aware so we can put supports in place for students. Um, 
I know we're getting really close to and that. Yeah, we're, break. we're we're very close to having our break. But Ryan, you know, I, this this is so important for us to be talking about right now, as we have a whole country full of kids coming back to school. I think this is all happening all over the world. So when we we come back. Um, Ryan Etheridge is going to continue to talk to us about very specific things that they're doing um, to help, you know, put these structures into the school system to support the children and the teachers and the parents. Um, Because I think all three buckets are just so important right now. And talking a little bit more, too, about the loss that's happened in COVID and what you're doing regarding the grief that some of the children are experiencing. You'd mentioned that some of the kids had lost their grandparents who may have been their primary caregivers. I don't think we think about children being orphans as a result of this, but some kids are. So we'll have more with Ryan uh, Etheridge with his wonderful ideas and his energy and how he helps support the people of North Carolina that I have to say he supports me in California because we share what he does um, in our network in the Trauma Resource Institute because we think it's that that important. So, so we will be back in just a couple of minutes where we will have more from Ryan Etheridge. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Ryan Etheridge, who is illuminating us with all the wonderful um, different structures and ideas that they've implemented in Cleveland County Schools in North Carolina to help their students as they are really transitioning from being at home in school to being back in the classroom. Um, I know that many of these things they were working on way before COVID ever happened, but I think COVID is also really impressed upon all of us, pressed upon all of us that we have to really think about how we can support children with mental health challenges as they're coming back. So, Ryan, um, one of the things I was hoping that you would continue to talk to us about is about these resiliency spaces. Now, you told us about the Help Now strategies on the desk, but I know there's much more. Can you bring us uh, up, to, up to date about what else the schools uh, are doing? in Cleveland County sure. Schools. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, as our teachers are learning more about the CRIM skills, um, they're wanting to incorporate these into their classrooms. And so one of the things that we've seen emerge is in the corners of classrooms, teachers are setting aside a resilient space. And there might be a, a fuzzy chair or like a fuzzy bean bag, and the students can self-select to go over to that area. And that self-selection is very important because we want them to be tracking and make the decision themselves. It's not supposed to be a punishment. It is supposed to be an opportunity for them to recognize and de-escalate. And they have help now strategies in there or, or physical manipulatives, visual cues, sometimes auditory could be a little um, like a little uh, fountain that they have on the desk that just trinkles water and the kids put their ear next to it. But we're building these physical spaces into our, our buildings. Um, and so another one is going down the hallway is schools have started building resilient hallways, even on playgrounds. They have um, areas where they've painted on the concrete different uh, resilient strategies. They put the resilient zone in certain areas. They have um, shapes that they encourage students to like participate in physically and as they go down the hallways. So it might be, hey, go down this uh, curvy line going down the hallway. And they just encourage their students to take a moment, and just focus on being physically present as they walk down the line in that curly line going back and forth. Um, Schools are selective to put that on hallways where there aren't a lot of classroom doors because sometimes this can get a little bit loud and we don't want <laughs> a little in rowdy. the middle of you. Yeah, we don't want in the middle of you practicing resilience <laughs> to get. Uh, hey, we're taking a test in here. Um, yeah, and you say, oh, so, those kids are being resilient out there again. They're they're cultivating their well being. <laughs> I and love those kids that. sure are resilient. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we've also talked about how there are certain environments where some more difficult conversations happen. And so that could be in your school counselor's office or in your social worker's office or in your in one of the administrator's office. So what can you do to, to allow the space for resilient moments, even in those places where crucial and difficult conversations necessarily must occur sometimes? And so we're seeing people put resilient baskets in these places and have prompts for how they can can be used for people in those spaces. So it sounds from what you're saying that you're using some common languaging, but also all these things that are being created, it's not only coming from you, it's coming from the people that are in your school districts thinking about how they can really be cultivating the children's well-being. That's what I'm hearing you say. Um, yeah. I get I get a lot of praise for all these wonderful things that I do, but in in fact, all I do is keep my eyes open. I communicate <laughs> the model to people, and then they come back and say, "We did it in this way in this setting." I'm like, 
that is really cool. I'm going to share this and amplify what you're doing. And so when you go around to our elementary schools and some of our middle schools, like it is, teachers have really embraced this as the common language they use in moments of, of stress to help students come back down and return back to their resilience zone and stay in their classrooms for well, learning. So this is really interesting because I know that, you know, having you know brought this forward to a lot of different places, sometimes you're just going, oh, no, another resiliency training that is not going to help me. And so how did you, you know, how did you structure the CRIM trainings and the ongoing coaching of staff to make this happen? Yeah. That, and, you know, I'm, I'm always an educator first, right? Like that's what, that's what I've got to do. And so to begin with, what we started with was the six hour CRIM training. And it was wonderful and people really bought in. But when we checked back in throughout the year, those skills maybe weren't as actively practiced as we were hoping, or maybe that person was using them for themselves, but really didn't have the ability to practice them um, in their setting or, or how to be a CRIM guide for a student in their, in their classroom in moments of stress. And so what we did is switch to the three hour model of CRIM. So we go through and we introduce the basic skills and then we pick up the rest of it over four coaching sessions. But as part of those coaching sessions, we have questions that specifically ask them to reflect on the implementation in their classroom. Because there's this big knowledge and doing gap that happens. Like you might have all the knowledge of resiliency, but how do you actually transition from knowledge into doing is difficult. But if you actually have a physical area in your classroom to remind you of these skills, or you have an ongoing four session coaching over the course of a year, um, you're a lot more encouraged to like build this into your everyday practice, your everyday language, into your warm up and your opening, your transition activities and your closing activities in a classroom. And so it so doesn't have to be like, oh no, I need another curriculum and I already have so much I have to teach, I'm never going to be able to do it. So it sounds like it's little sound bites, an integration. And that's been a helpful way to integrate it into the school. Did I say that correctly? I mean, I, it sounds that way. Yeah. The, so much, so often we think about um, like when we do new curriculums, they really are additive. Like you have this exactly six and a half or seven hours in a school day and you're given one more thing to hold on to and you're already drowning and they're like, Hey, here's a cup of water. And you're like, I can't fit this into my space. And so instead what we try to do is make sure that this is something that just weaves in and out throughout the day. I think that's a little bit more challenging. It has a lot more variability between classrooms, but also by continuing to go back to the coaching sessions and reminding people about the foundational skills of tracking and resourcing and, and help now and bringing them back towards this throughout over the course of a year. And then a kickoff event for the following year, it's been, helpful to kind of instill in people the actual value. These are values that I hold, not just this thing I have to give to other people. So it's, it's also about the teachers, you know, so, you know, again, the oxygen mask on. So right. when the teachers seem to see how it helps them, does that increase the likelihood they're going to share it with the kids? Right. And, and that's how most people, that's how everyone I've talked to and had a good conversation about this. They've always started by practicing this first and then trying to identify ways how they can help lead other people through this thinking as well. So a lot of teachers come in with, I'm going to use this for myself. By the time they leave, they think I'm going to try to use this for myself. I really enjoyed this. And usually they have one or two of those kids in their class. They're like, I think I'm going to try this on this kid because <laughs> this thing happens. It, but that gives you an anchor point and something to build off of. And you say, hey, if it works for this kid, who's really been having a hard time in your class, how much more good could you do for all the other kids by kind of incorporating this common idea into your now, Do you see the children after they learn the skills, teaching it to other children? Have you seen it kind of um, that sustainability factor that sometimes happens? So 
I have personally not, but I've heard examples of people talking about how their kids will say, Hey, are you feeling, um, you kind of bumped up? Do you want to go, you know, hang out in the classroom? I've seen people post videos on Twitter of their kids. This is not kids in my school district of kids leading each other through, through these elements of resiliency. Um, and those are very encouraging because we all are, we're biological beings. Like we respond to our stress and we can recognize it in ourselves. And it's a defensive mechanism to recognize when other people are in stress. And so you kind of, identify, you know, you feed off other people, like we're a community together. And that's why um, this really does work. Um, enjoy. Yeah, and that's the other kind of question. I know it's, we've talked about it a little bit before the break, but, you know, we have this common desire, I think, in schools. I've always been so um, dedicated to teachers because I've always seen how much they spend their own money, how they come in, and if they don't have it through the school district, they figure out how to do it. Um, One time I was in, I think I was in Walmart, and this teacher was ahead of me, and she was buying all this stuff. I said, oh, do you get stipends from your school? She goes, no. I actually bought everything. I said, I'm buying everything for you. I mean, it wasn't that much, but I just said, I'm going to buy it for you. This is my act of kindness for today. And you could just see her going, oh, my gosh, someone's helping me with this. I felt, I felt what I'm thinking about that, it brings tears to my eyes because it just makes me feel so good that I was able to do that one time. So, you know, so with the teachers right now, with this common purpose, but with this kind of divisiveness this is happening, the masking and not masking. And I just was reading something up in Marin County in California where one teacher, it sounded like she it didn't say whether she'd been vaccinated or not, but any of us can be carriers if we're vaccinated or not. But she had just taken her mask down to do um, to read to the kids and 22 people ended up getting COVID. So I'm just wondering what happens in a school between the staff when you get one of these outbreaks or have you, can you talk a little bit about what your opinion is of how, I know you talked about grace, but how do we deal with this right now? Because right. I know this directly impacts also children's mental health. It does. And, and it's, it's easy to reduce it down to like a single thing and be like, well, this should have happened in this way. And you're like, well, the read aloud is one of the, I'm telling you, it is one of the most treasured time periods that a teacher has yes. with their kids. And so like, I, I really relate, like I do a read aloud. I use my read aloud skills every night with my kids before bed, you know, and we, you know, we read about um, the dragon who loves tacos or something like that. And uh <laughs> And so that's a that's a really important point. I will say that we do need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to guarantee the safety of our students. Um, and and so that has to be foundational. And and as much as I know, I've talked about being graceful in this situation with decisions people make. That is always goes parallel with how do you exercise the most safety as possible in this situation. And so people are falling at different points along that continuum that they're making decisions. Um, but concern yourself with safety. So what do you do when students all of a sudden have this supportive adult, someone who they're building a relationship with, someone who they love and they care about, who's been there, support every day. All of a sudden, this person is removed from their immediate life and circle for 14 days. And all of a sudden, yeah. this loving, supportive adult is no longer there to be a loving and supportive person for them. Um you need to be really aware of that. Oftentimes, like schools, we talked about it in terms of like mental health services and, and connecting students with mental health services, but also schools, we give food bags out, we give resources out, we do all kinds of wonderful things um, for students. Like we are a hub for the the, the well-being of students. Um, and so I, uh, 
it's really important that we maintain safety for students. And, and this is a hard situation, but you got to be safe. And so make sure that if that, that resource is removed, that maybe you supplement it with some additional resource from your school counseling team, or maybe a teaching assistant who they're very familiar with and they have an experience with can come in and fill that void for a period of time. Make sure that you're open and honest about a timeline with kids. Like the unknown is sometimes harder than like a difficult known. And so how do you, how do you help coach them through this situation and be a support for them is, is tough. Well, I think the other thing that um, strikes me that it could be very hard right now is that um, I just read this um, in the news recently where there was a couple who, for whatever reason, decided not to be vaccinated. And they were young. They were like in their 40s and they both got COVID and they both died. And so now these four children were now orphans. And I think that is happening with more frequency. And we mentioned this before the break about, let's say, their grandparents were the primary caregivers. Um, I was talking to someone from a children's hospital well-known children's hospital. And they said, one of the things they're seeing is also sometimes a grandparent may have died during 2020. The parent, the child kind of got lost in the system and they're having exacerbated health problems, not because of COVID, but because of other reasons. So their hospital is full of kids, not only with more kids coming with COVID, but with other conditions that were left untreated. So I'm just wondering, you know, you as a school, what what happens with that when you know, let's say, primary care, you know, this could happen to, it doesn't have to be from COVID, it could be from anything, where you, the child loses their primary caregiver, what kinds of supports do you have for children in that case right now? Yeah, um, so... I, it is far more acute right now with COVID where this is something that's coming a lot, lot more often, but just schools function. Like we see children through all the highs and lows of life that they go through. And so when I was, when I was a high school administrator, it came up and there was just a period of time where we had a couple of students who had lost an older sibling who they were close to and, and another group of students who had lost a parent and then a, another group of students who had lost a grandparent who was like either a primary caregiver or someone who like lived in the home and who with whom was a, like a significant mm-hmm. resource for them. And so this is before COVID, but our social worker said, you know what, I used to work in hospice and, and I'm trained in grief counseling. I want to do brief uh, a brief uh, therapy session with these students on, on grief therapy. And I was like, this is interesting. And you know, me from elementary school and high school ministry, I didn't even know that was like a, a thing. I mean, just to like totally, totally disclose my, my ignorance in this. I didn't know that was a thing. And I said, you know what, what, what do you need? You, you, I guess you need a physical space and you need me to make sure the kids get there. She goes, yep. And parent permission, of course. And so that's what we set up. And, and so these structures have already existed in schools. It's about recognizing them and making sure that students can be referred to them. And then during this time period, uh, maybe providing a little bit more space for more of these to happen. Um, And so what can you do as an administrator, as a teacher, first off, recognize when students are going through this. And so if you're talking about the loss of a loved one, that's the fine, like you've got to have a relationship with the students in your school. Um, You can't just be the teacher who sits behind a desk and delivers instruction and leaves at the end of the day. Like you actually have to have fun find ways to have meaningful relationships and build those with students so you can identify their needs and then connect them with resources that already exist, but are oftentimes hidden from like students' awareness. Like we don't, 
advertise that we might do some brief therapy groups with kids. That's something we trust our staff to recognize and refer out for the need. Mm-hmm. And so um, that that recognize and refer language is something we use quite frequently. So it could recognize it, and refer. I love that. Yeah. Because that means, but also when we talk about the community resiliency model skills and teaching teachers, they would even have more accelerated abilities to recognize and refer because it's not only what a child is saying, it's not only what they're feeling or expressing, it's what you're noticing about if there's a shift in them that you sometimes, there's no words to describe it, but you just know that a kid's off. And how many times did you ever feel that when you were a teacher? You knew that there's something not right with that kid, but it wasn't necessarily anything they were saying to you. And often sometimes children don't have the words to describe what they're feeling. and they just they just feel off. And I, I want to really emphasize this, Ryan, right now, because some of the research that's being done when children have adverse childhood experiences and all these things we're talking about, COVID has been one of these, losing someone that they love, whether it's a grandparent or a parent or a sibling, is that when you have at least, you know, one caring adult, if you can have two, that would be great that that can really reduce the impacts of these adverse childhood experiences because it's not only the well-being of this child in this present moment, but it's how that child grows up to be an adult and how much, you know, the backpacks of suffering that can be on our backs that we can never feel like we can get rid of. Certainly, we're always going to remember and have a sadness towards people that we loved. But if we get stuck with that grief, and that's one of the things that worries me about a mental health, as a mental health practitioner, if we aren't thinking about these things for children right now, how difficult that can be. Or even if a parent gets hospitalized, and it used to be that you could go and visit your parent and be near them and know, okay, they're sick, but they're going to get better. But now there's the not knowing, even with our, all of our wonderful technology, that's not the same as being with that person. So these kinds of, of um, uh, structures within school districts become very important. But it's not just having the structure, it's how are you going to implement it? How do you access it if these things happen? Right. So, and, and we can't just expect students and families to be able to navigate that themselves. Um, and so one, one of the things we do every year is just communicate this with our staff. But something um, you mentioned earlier about how do we support our parents um, so last year, we, we just realized, hey, we're not really able to have parents come into our, our physical location. So what supports can we provide for them? And uh, one of our directors started something called the Parent University. And these are pretty common. Like I heard a lot of school districts doing this. So this isn't like, hey, we did this awesome thing. We just heard about other people doing it. Like, well, let's do it and let's meet the needs. Well, that and we're just seeing in case there's community. somebody listen, listening that doesn't have a parent university, you might want to start one in your school district. So what is That's the right. parent, Yeah, what is a parent university? Well, before COVID, it was we would have a, a regular period. Sometimes it was a half day on Saturday, and we'd have a scholarship uh, consultant come in and like talk with families through like the how to apply for scholarships and complete FAFSAs on a Saturday. Um, sometimes it would be something else. But during COVID, we said we need to do these things virtually. And so during the day, uh, one of the ones I, I was I just really enjoyed last year was one we did with one of our our mental health clinicians. And we said, you know what, sometimes in rural communities or in your neighborhood, um, as much as you might know that that school counselor is a a great resource for connecting to resources in the community, um, maybe, and sorry, this is just kind of a joke, but maybe that school counselor was your husband's ex-girlfriend. And so you don't want to go access that resource. You would instead uh, like to go somewhere else. Um, 
And so what we did is develop this training for people through Parent University that says, here's a two-page paper that connects you with all the local mental health resources in the area and in common language for someone like me who's not from this field, what resources do they provide? And on the other side is, uh, this is what session one looks like. This is what session two is in North Carolina. This is what a comprehensive clinical assessment means. This is what a psychiatrist does, a psychologist, a mental health clinician. This is what a social worker does. And go through some of those language that's different. We talk about what the first session is and the second session, help people talk about funding, like what does that look like in North Carolina? And so we put that out there so that parents could, if they didn't want to go through the recognize and refer protocol of a school, instead they could go through, they had a number, a single place where they could go and, and get resources for their children somewhere else. Well, I guess I can imagine that also the confidentiality that many people would want to have that this also provides information that's given in broad spectrums and people can take and leave whatever they want. So that would right. be important, especially when you say that, you know, the counselor at the school was your husband's, you know, ex-girlfriend. <laughs> I don't think I would want to go see her then, right? You would want that to be. <laughs> I've never had that unique experience, but that was the thing It was in my head. Like sometimes yes. we just don't want to access the resources that are right there. And instead we want a little bit more control over them. And so we wanted to provide that to parents as easily as possible. Possible. So this kind of this is one of my last questions. Oh my goodness! I tell I have to have you back on again. We have four minutes left. Oh my goodness, um, Ryan! This has been such a wonderful conversation. But so, how do you think parents can support their children right now during this time of incredible transition and change? We've talked a lot about what the school is doing, but there's a parent sitting out there going, you know, I just I don't know what to do. Sometimes, what would you suggest? I worry sometimes I get on here and I talk about all the great things that we've done and that we're doing. And, and it paints this picture that, that everything's like perfect and, and rainbows and, you know, Skittles falling from the sky, but that's not the case. Um, even within my own family, one of, one of my children as school approached, even though he was very, very excited about attending school, his anxiety was peaking at bedtime. And so we, um, First off, as parents, we needed to be really aware of that. And so some, some of that is providing a space just to have some calm together time to actually talk about things. Now, this kid's six years old. He can't verbalize, well, I am feeling anxiety about going to school. Instead, what we're, we are is we're observant to what's going on physically with our child. And so for him, it was bedtime. Bedtime yeah. is really difficult anticipating what comes next. And so being observant of your children, being considerate of them, and then accessing resources that are available to you are great. For us in our house, we use uh, grounding skills at night before bedtime. They know help now skills that we that we use during periods of difficult times. And so these are these are resources we have that are ready, readily available. And we talk about them outside of moments of stress so we can access them in moments of stress more easily. Well, it sounds like that paying attention is so important, um, not only for teachers, but parents as well. And so, Ryan, we only have, I'd say if there's one parting thought you want to say right now, if there's anything that you leave with, you want the parents that are listening, if they're worried about their kid, what do you suggest? Uh, your, your kid's school cares a whole lot about them. And if you have a worry about them, your school might not be seeing that same worry. So talk to them. They care about you. They love you. They want what's best for your child and reach out to them because they are a, a, they can be a support for you as well. And so, Ryan, I might, maybe there might be some people out there listening, go, I'm going to talk to that man to see if we can do what he's doing there in uh, North Carolina and let's say Maine or California. So how can people <laughs> reach you? What's the best way to reach you? 
probably my work email address, which maybe we'll post because it's long, but it's R-S Etheridge, E-T-H-E-R-I-D-G-E at clevelandcountyschools.org. It's very long. I apologize. (laughs) Um, I'm also on LinkedIn because I was told by Vanderbilt that was a good idea for me to get on LinkedIn. This is new to me, the social media world, um, but you're welcome to reach out in whichever way. Ryan Etheridge. I'll just say Ryan Etheridge. Oh, there's famous singers that are named that have the same name that you have. Sure. So, yes. But so Ryan, Not many. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and sharing your time and your wisdom with us. And to all of our listeners right now, as your kids are actually starting school or about to start school, I'm just wishing you well. Remember what else is true. Hug and love your kids. Let them know that you care about them and you're going to recognize, hopefully, when they're maybe struggling and just give them that big old hug and let them know that you're there with them 100%. Remember what else is true in your life and in their lives too. So again, Ryan, thank you so much. And this is Elaine Miller-Karis with Resiliency Within Voice of America signing off for today. We will see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.